This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by L. Grover Fricks to witness the resurrection of Jesus and consider the figure of Miriam the Migdal. Woohoo! Who in the world is that? Uh, we'll have to see, Brent. Hopefully people can guess, but... Oh. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of Miriams to juggle in the in the text. So. That's true. Uh, but yeah, we have the resurrection in this section, which is pretty exciting. I don't know about everybody else, but I would have preferred if literally any of the gospel writers could have like stopped... And for just a minute, given us one paragraph of like the mechanics of, and this is what happened when Jesus was dead <laughs> you know, and how he got resurrected. Any kind of theological framework to work with? No, just the perspective of the witnesses is what we have here today. Mm-hmm. So, oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, one of those things we have to wait to figure out until later, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Uh, but yes, so I have a bunch of material to stop you when you're reading the text. And then I've got stuff to talk about Miriam the Migdal, like you just said. But uh, you were prepping by listening to an audiobook of this section. Yes. Uh, and don't get me wrong. I obviously read a lot of scripture out loud. So I understand the plight of trying to get the tone and everything right. But whenever Mary said her lines, especially the line, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. The the narrator makes her sound so pitiful. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, and, dear. and I like I don't know how I would do it better because obviously like this is probably one of the most intensely emotional experiences of her life. Right. They have taken her Lord away and she doesn't know where he is. Right. But uh, yeah, I don't know. The tone just. Uh, There's just... a lot of options to go with yeah. that people might swing to in various emotional states and pitiful is one of them, but not oh, the yeah. only one. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that I'll do it any better, but I just, after having listened to it half a dozen times, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Just lean into it. Put on your best Shakespearean. Ooh, alas, (laughs) where has they taken my Lord? (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure if that's Shakespeare so much as Monty Python, but all right. Both, both and. Yeah. Okay. Well, should we jump into the text then? Sounds good. Better than us chatting. I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess so. No argument there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. All right. Pause just for one sec. So three things. One... I like that God honors the ones who rise up early and stay up late to catch a glimpse of him, right? She's the one out there and she's the one who gets this amazing experience. Second, I love that she calls him Lord still. Um, he's still curious. He's still out on Um, Despite everything that's happened, she hasn't, she hasn't shoved away her hope and faith of him being messiah um she still calls him that even though he's been killed like so many messiahs have before or false messiahs anyway and then lastly the we don't know where they've laid them i think is a 
him rather is probably brought out by her because he's got to be buried by law within a very specific time frame we see in Deuteronomy 21. And so it's not just like a, oh no, where'd he go? Now I can't weep in his presence or whatever, but they're trying to keep Torah here. And um, if you don't know where the body is, then that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you don't know where it is, I think it's a problem for a lot of reasons, but yes, Generally Torah among them. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, at, at this point she, she discovers that he's not there. And so at that point, yeah, she's thinking of Torah. She's, she's running adrenaline is pumping. Like this is a, this is a moment of like shock and like immediacy. And I think, I think you feel that. Yeah. I think there's probably some anger in there too, because of the way she frames it. She's, it, she doesn't just say, I don't know what happened. That'd be more like freaking out. But she says, they have taken away the Lord from his tomb. That has some, she has a party in mind. I can't quite tell there if she imagines that to be the Romans or the uh, officials or whom she's imagining, but she has a She's got an enemy here that she's thinking of, it seems. Mm, yeah, great point. All right, that's it. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. All right, pause. It's a parenthetical there. Yes, yes. Uh, by the way, I was working from the inner linear in that translated that last line, they had not yet understood the scripture that it behooves him to rise from the dead. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It behooves the Lord to rise. It, it would, yes. Uh, it would. Um, okay, so the running. Who do we have running? And uh, obviously, of course, they have an emotional reason to be running and freaking out and everything. But we like to look a little bit beyond Peshat, right? So what's... Uh, who runs in the text, Brent? Uh, well, I think of Abraham initially. Mm -hmm. This could be my first guy. Elijah runs. Uh, yes, he does. And he runs speedily, by the way. That's true. So they might be uh, putting some connection between John and Eliyahu there. Who else runs? Does Joseph run? Yeah, Joseph runs. He runs away anyway. I don't know okay. if that's quite what Did, you're looking for. I'm looking for a different story. By the way, other people who run who Bama Slack or whoever can go off in my discussion groups. Enjoy. <laughs> There's going to be so many things here to weave in. I'm not going to have time to do the whole sermon from that spot, right? But Abraham runs, Rivka runs, by the way. She usually gets forgotten. Lavan runs, Esav runs, um, and all these different instances. So you can pull whatever beautiful, spiritual, mystical thing you want from any of those connections. But the one that I'm going to go with is the only spot that I can think of where they run to go get someone, specifically somebody who was in a pit. Um, and it is a Jojo story. So it's Genesis 41. And Pero has asked for the presence of Jojo because he's heard that he can interpret dreams. I love that you're saying Pero, but then you're calling the other guy Jojo. Well, 
you know, you know, it's Joseph isn't his real name anyway. So why not yeah, have sure. fun? Yeah. Okay. So it says that the servants of Pharaoh, so hopefully, you know, as servants of God, that would be John and Peter, um, run to get him from the pit, to get Joseph from the pit. And they shave him, change his clothes, and bring him before Pero. So we have these different elements here. They're running so excited to go get Yosef, but his clothes have already been, or uh, Jesus rather, but his clothes have already been changed. Um, there's a reference to Sudarium, which goes on his head. I'll come back to that in a second. And he's not there. And they're trying to bring him out back into society, right? Maybe they're thinking, aha, he's, uh, maybe they're even hoping that he's alive. I don't know. Um, but bringing him out either back into society or maybe back to the high priest, you know, there's different uh, possibilities of things that you can do there. But he's not there. He's not in prison anymore. So he's a better Joseph. Mm. like that i switched that for you i just when i hear joseph i think of an angry old irish catholic man um <laughs> you know who's like working out on the sea fishing well i do like the idea of a better joseph that fits fits in adds an extra character to our discussion from hebrews when we talked about that way back in session four there you go um yeah i did want to ask about the cloth mm -hmm. the cloth wrapped around his head uh, it says the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So is there like, is this like an arrangement of like, this is how the tomb is set up. It's ready for someone. You have your linen here. You have your cloth over there. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I do agree that it's important that there are these extra details. You know, if you look at it, if you split it up, it's like four lines talking about where the clothes are and how they're arranged inside the tomb, which is a weird detail. Like it doesn't talk about the different plants that are in the garden. Um, why do we have so much detail? So first off, I think that linen cloth, um, according to my research, is probably his talit, so his prayer shawl. And they've probably made the fringes uh, quote, rendered ritually unfit. But that's what you'd be buried in at this time as your prayer shawl. But it's too holy to go in a grave, and so you take off your fringes. Um, so that's probably what that linen cloth is. But then that's the, the part that's wrapped around his head. No, that's the they go into the tomb and they see the okay. linen cloths lying there. They call that strips of linen in the NIV. Well, are they both made of linen? Strips and cloths are both linen, yes. Well, strips of linen and then. The, oh, a talit linen. Yes. The cloth that gets wrapped around his head is called a sudarium. And it's like your sweat cloth um, for your face. Uh, Roman soldiers wore it tight around their neck. But um, I was, I brought this up with my husband, who's wonderful. And was like, why do you think that there's a special attention paid to this head cloth and he bum, 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 brought up Moshe because um, Moshe has something that's supposed to cover his face and after he sees the presence of God he puts on this veil to come back to not expose the true glory of God to the people of Israel but Jesus has removed his head veil the thing that goes over his face and then he's going to come out and show the full glory and character of God to the people Book of Glory, indeed. Book of Glory. There it is. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Um, so, yeah, I guess my, as far as the arrangement of it, does that, 
yeah, I just don't understand. Is that, I, I, maybe we don't know, but is that like the arrangement that, because at some point they do go back into the tomb and uh-huh. they unwrap everything and then they put the bones into the right. little storage thing. So is, is that arrangement like, oh, he's already been removed or is it like, oh, he hasn't even been here yet? That's a good question. Um, I know that he would be wearing all of his clothes on the way to the tomb because they're not going to, there's a big procession that has to happen. Um, and you're not going to carry the body naked through the street and then <laughs> put clothes on it when you're at the tomb. So it's, he yeah, would I guess I would have, have assumed it would be a change of clothes once you got to the tomb or something. Gotcha. But, but yeah, I could see that either way. What they do with your clothes when you're put into the ossuary, I think is a good question. Um, Usually, if you have an extra piece of fabric, um, like a bride's clothes after the wedding, they'll repurpose it into being like a Torah cover because you wouldn't just let a valuable piece of fabric go like that. But that's not a piece of fabric that's been in contact with the dead body. Um, so I'm not sure what they would do with the talit unless it disintegrates, but I wouldn't think so in that weather in a year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last thing. There's this back and forth about uh, about uh, John and Peter and which one gets there first but doesn't go in, blah, 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 uh-huh. uh, which is always entertaining. But I was thinking that maybe we don't know what uh, what tribes Peter and John are from. Um, if you Google it, you'll come up with a bunch of hits of answers and I'll be a random person being like, definitely Reuben and somebody else saying, definitely Benjamin. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so maybe there's a compelling concrete argument out there somewhere, but I wasn't able to find it. Um, so if you are of the priestly class, if you are a son of Levi, um, or a Cohen, you have extra rules about being in the presence of a dead body. So if they don't believe Mary in general, like there's also, you're not supposed to go near dead stuff in general, even if you're not a Levite, but it's a really big deal if you're a Levite. So it could be that they're not sure whether to trust Mary or not. And so they don't want to go in because then they would be unclean or they're just, you know, kids freaked out on Halloween night. One of the two. Hmm. Yeah. Would they have known what tribe they were a part of or would some of that have been lost like in the exile or anything like that? That's a good question. Um, I would imagine that that's so important to your identity as a family and as a Jewish person that you would have kept that um, unless you were orphaned in the siege and then somebody found you, there's a possibility you wouldn't know your tribe. But I think it's probably intentional that the gospel writers don't include the tribes of any of the apostles, uh, the, yeah, the apostles or the disciples. Sure. Except for, of course, Paulos wants everybody to know. <laughs> well, he was, he was a, a special stuff. exception in a lot of ways. So yes. I guess he can get away with it. He certainly thinks so. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't sitting around the campfire with all the other people with Jesus when Jesus was like, okay, let's drop this tribe stuff. <laughs> Right. Right. I guess. I suppose. Um, Okay. So, yes, it behooves him out of the dead to rise. Uh, Indeed. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? 
They have taken my lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Okay, I'll pause you. Uh, <laughs> How'd I do in my delivery? <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it hasn't been crossing my mind, which is a good thing. No Monty Python, no silly voice, no, uh, no extra ascribing drama. So uh, she is standing outside the tomb weeping, um, which again, we can look at that just from an emotional standpoint, totally valid. We can also look at it as that it's the job of women in that area era to be the mourners. And so societally, no one's going to bother her there. If she just is doing her job. Um, that's one of the ways that you show honor to the dead is through public hmm. mourning. Uh, and so she's, you can look at it from either way. She loves Jesus a lot and, or she's doing her job. So perhaps uh, surprising that there are not other people there mourning. Well, the other gospels do put other people there mourning. Well, okay. <laughs> and they're all women. Salome's there. Um, Mary, Ma mother Mary is there, etc. Yeah. I guess for people reading John's gospel, maybe they would wonder why she's why the is only the, one. The only one. Yeah. Yes. Um, because everybody else abandoned ship. Okay. So she sees two angels in white sitting. Why are there two angels in this narrative? Brent for the, for the two people running maybe. Okay. It's like a Mary doesn't count Peter and John. Well, she did run, but, uh, but she, well, does she run back to the tomb? She runs to the disciples to let them know that he's gone. It doesn't, it does not rank her in the foot race that happens, but she's still there when they leave. So she apparently followed them back um, at whatever speed. We don't know. Maybe she teleported Jesus style. I mean, we haven't, we haven't got there yet, but there's two angels and two disciples who ran. And then there's another person and then Mary. So, you know. All right. It's three and three. Tallying the characters. Um, how many spiritual beings are present in Eden, Brent? Mm. Ooh, well. To be specific, the Garden of Eden. Because yeah. the text says the Garden is in Eden, not that the Garden is Eden. But that's <laughs> um, a different story. Sure, sure. Uh, well, I I would say three? Only two? There's, well, I mean... What are you thinking? Tell me about. Where I, are you I was thinking Adam and Eve and God. Oh, spiritual beings. Okay. We have a different uh, definition of spiritual beings. Uh, yes. Adam and Eve <laughs> and God all have a spiritual dimension And I wasn't even them. sure if I should, if the serpent would qualify <laughs> yeah. considering his unusual characteristics. Right. So um, I'm thinking of spiritual beings and you have like earthly animals and then you have heavenly animals, which is usually how we see angels like seraphim means serpent, etc. Um, okay, so you do have the snake who I am counting and you can get into, well, that doesn't actually say Satan and Apep and I know. I know. I think we've covered Work that. Work with me here. We covered that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, and then we also have got the angel standing outside the garden with the giant flaming sword that's also rotating, by the way. If you look in the Hebrew, it's not just like flaming. It's which is pretty cool. Um, I want to see an Indiana Jones about finding that relic. I think that'd be cool. Well, that makes me think of uh, Kylo Ren's lightsaber, how it has that like crackle going on to it. Disappointing. 
<laughs> okay, I'll give it to you. Um, okay, anyway, so two angels uh, perhaps mirroring Eden here because before one was destroying Eden or trying to bring darkness into it or chaos if you're team apep which i pretty much am and then another one who's supposed to be keeping people out but instead they're sitting inside kind of reminds me of pip and mary at isengard just chilling out oh hey there good to see you <laughs> um, when the fellowship trots in or part of it anyway and they're in white now we've been conditioned thanks to paintings of the renaissance and medieval era right to imagine angels always in white always mm. they have halos they have giant wings and they're sitting in pretty ropes that sure. are always white right um but who who wears white what what why are why are they in white any ideas brent uh, is it uh, some kind of priest thing it's a good question um none of the other times angels show up by the way do we get descriptions of what they're wearing and angels show up pretty much all the time. And it's never like, they're wearing brown today. <laughs> it was spirit day at school, and they're all wearing their PJs. Um, okay, so we've got the biblical angle. You can, again, go off. Do your thing, Bema people. Things that are white in the text, we've got manna. We've got Levon's sheep. White in Leviticus is always bad because it's always depicting... Um, leprosy disease, yeah. disease like your hair turns white that's a bad sign um however in daniel it is what the ancient of days wears in ecclesiastes 9 it says that we should all be wearing white which oops good thing nobody treats ecclesiastes as part of the canon i guess i agree i am wearing white right now well aren't you holy canonized <laughs> officially <laughs> Um, I thought when I read that, oh, that's like Zachariah three, when he gets his outfit changed out and he gets a nice new outfit. And I remembered that being white, but I looked back and checked just as a fancy ceremonial mantle. So darn. However, who in Roman society wears white citizens only wore white for ceremonial occasions. Um, so you could see it that way as this is a great moment, the resurrection. And so people are dressed up for the ceremony. And then I like your priestess thought, um, but the people who would wear white in a priestly context in that time would be priestesses of Isis, which there is a huge Isis cult in the Mediterranean, not just in Egypt. True story. Um, Greece and Rome were really into Isis. And then also Vesta. Okay, you're going to have to explain what you're saying because I'm hearing a different thing you're, when you say ISIS. You're thinking the Islamic State. Yes. Well, that would be a plot twist, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> wow, those guys have really been going for a long time. Uh, Islam does not exist yet, yeah, Brent. Yeah. Sure. Uh, no, ISIS is a goddess of resurrection, by the way. So she's the one who... Um, who Osiris dies and she brings him back as well as her husband. Um, How do you spell it? Just the same as the Islamic State. Oh, okay. Very confusing on uh, the searches. <laughs> I'm going to put this in the show notes, though. All right. Go for it. Wikipedia. The one and only. The one and only. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, right there on the front page, by the way, the worship of Isis was ended by the rise of Christianity in fourth through sixth century. Her worship may have influenced Christian beliefs and practices such as the veneration of Mary. What a statement to make front page of uh, Wikipedia. 
Maybe. That's not what we're doing today. That's a different Mary. Different Mary, yeah. Different Mary. All right. And the angels ask her, woman, why do you weep? Which is a very angel thing. Um, angels sometimes give proclamations, but often they're engaging us relationally, right? Um, really reminds me of Hagar's story, um, which is the first time an angel pops up, by the way. Hagar is the first person to talk to an angel. And she's the first person, except for Adam and Eve post Eve. She's also the per- first person to see God. She sees God walk by just like Moses does. But alas, we don't, we don't pay attention anyway. Um, so reminds me of Hagar. She's out here weeping, right? She feels like, um, what's the meaning of that connection? So Hagar has been cut off from the family of God. She's been cut off from the household. That line has ended. Her son is going to die. Um, all of the, all of the things, And Mary, it's pretty easy, or Miriam, to imagine her kind of in the same place. So they ask her that, and she says, because they have taken away my Lord, Um, which again, there's that Kyrios again, so still calling him Adonai. I don't know where they put him, Uh, which sets us up to keep on going. So trot on. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And I guess get him in the sense of, like, he's he's not where he's supposed to be. Like, we got to get this thing buttoned down before it's too late, right? Right. Um, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic or whatever. <laughs> Rabboni, which means teacher. What's Rabboni. your what, what, what's your take on that? What's your take on the Hebrew Aramaic situation? Just uh well, that's a really wide folder to open in my brain. <laughs> I would rather uh stick with focusing on your Texas inflection there. Rabona. <laughs> Shalom. Boker toe. Well, anyway, I think it's well established that Marty and I at least believe that it's probably Hebrew and not Aramaic. My inner linear um, of Greek here says that it's Hebrew, so you can fight with mm-hmm. whoever you'd like to there. Perfect. Enjoy. Uh, they don't really seem like they're that different of languages anyway, so it's like... That's true, actually. If you are, you know hiding behind a tree, listening in on this conversation between, between these two people, like maybe you, maybe you think she said it in, I don't know about this word in particular, but it just seems like the kind of thing where you could mix it up. Sure. Who am I to, to argue with the good old, there's someone in a bush theory. (laughs) Uh, okay. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. All right, pause. So Jesus repeats the same question that the angels asked, which also is just very much in the character of God. I don't know. I feel like if you've been in a relationship with God for a while, you're used to the fact that God will ask you one thing and you go, and then he'll just you know repeat the question um but he adds whom do you seek to that which is interesting um you could do a lot there that we don't have time for but she thinks that it's the gardener um which again is going to be an eden reference 
you know, um, and also just literal, obviously, because they're in a garden. But who else gets buried in a garden? Just just fun facts moment. You could build a whole, again, and an essay off of, and I'm not going to, but who's buried in a garden, Brent? I'm sure it's on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> I, for some reason, I want to say Daniel, but I don't know why I want to say that. Interesting. Um, it's Manasseh. Manasseh, Manasseh okay. gets buried in a garden, which is nice, and it's unusual. Most people don't get buried in gardens. You want them away. You want them in a specific spot. You want them in a family crypt. But which king comes after good old evil Manasseh? Uh, this is stretching way too far back for me. I have not... Since Sunday school. <laughs> any portion of this material in a little while. It's going to be Yoshiyahu, which probably doesn't help you. That's Josiah. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, Yoshi, the guy from uh, Mario. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Josiah, of course, is our big, great reformer of the whole religion um, in that he sets up a new temple system and he sets an, up new ways of, slash old ways of... Um, meeting with God and achieving atonement and that he um, takes down all these idols and sets up a centralized place of worship versus before it was scattered around. So he's a big deal. And so again, we've got another little ding, 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 in my opinion, from the text showing us all these different pictures. Jesus is a better Yosef. Jesus is a better Yoshiahu. He's opening up new ways and reforming and it's a new era in the worship of God, basically. Um, and then she calls she calls Jesus Lord, even though she doesn't realize that it's the gardener. This is not like the word for sir. Um, she calls him Kyrios again, which means she has now called Jesus Lord three times, which I know that he gets his own redemption moment. But... The first redemption of the betrayal of Jesus does not come from Peter himself, although he has an individual thing there. The redemption of the disciples abandoning Jesus first, in my opinion, comes the hand of Miriam, the Migdal, still calling him the Lord three times. And maybe four when she gets back and reports the news to them. I've seen the Lord. Perhaps. Perhaps. But in this scene, it's three. Sure. And I need it to be three, Brent. Don't mess with me. <laughs> you know, there's that three then four thing that, uh, you yeah, know, tends to, tends to show up every once in a while. That's true. All right. You can have it back. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then Jesus has this super famous line that would be its own episode. And I'm fine with it being its own episode at some point. But he says, your translation said, do not cling to me. What was it? Mm, do not hold on to me. Do not hold on to me. Okay. Interlinear, cease clinging to me. This is confusing. Thomas gets to touch Jesus. Deuteronomy tells us four times to cling to the Lord. There's other spots in Tanakh that say that clinging to the Lord is good. Um, so again, this is its whole episode um, and is not, it's not the easiest thing to parse and some of it contributes to the little bit less than graceful um, interpretations of Mary that we'll see later um, that perhaps your audiobook was running in the vein of um, but we don't have time so we're not going to do a whole 20 <laughs> minutes on 
that particular portion. Um, But then he says, go, however, to my brothers and sisters and say to them, I'm ascending to the father of me and the father of you and the God of me and the God of you. So this could be taken two ways. He could be saying, my father is your father and my God is your God because he's acting as in the line of the firstborn, right? But he's already kind of expounded on that by talking about my uh, brothers and sisters are those who do the mitzvot, right? So that wouldn't be that big of a sudden theological revelation. Um, it's also possible to read it that because he's giving Miriam the line to say to the disciples that he means father of Miriam and the father of you and the God of Miriam and the God of you, which would be setting up, um, some equality lines between them, jumping to, you know, Paul saying, therefore there is no slave or free or Greek or Jew or male or female, but rather all children of God, right? Mm, Um, So it's interesting to me. Maybe he's doing that. Maybe he's not. I'm not married to the idea, but it is a kind of weird phrase to throw in. Why otherwise at this moment? And it makes sense to me that if it is in reference to Miriam, um, he would give her that line to say, right, as she's about to step into teaching the disciples what she has been given to teach, right? Um, because as we'll talk about later, we know from contemporaneous sources that that didn't necessarily go over so well, um, despite the depiction in The Chosen, which I still love, Um not everyone was always super jazzed that she was there. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll look at it in a sec. Okay. It Reading, being there for on. evening. Yeah. Go ahead. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, excellent. I have heard to good effect, and I still think that there's some validity to it, um, that we might criticize the disciples for locking themselves in a room and being scared. (laughs) Um, I don't want to criticize them too harshly because, uh, again, I cannot imagine if you're following along Messiah and you're expecting at any moment he's going to like break through and pop off that cross and but you know all the romans like vanish instantly or whatever um theory and hope they might have had that whole time that he was going to pull through and he didn't and he died um that's really awful <laughs> and uh i can imagine it being a literal fear of the people who would be out to get the followers which is also a legitimate fear seeing as what happened to you know the followers of shimon bar kokhba and the other messiahs um so i don't want to be too harsh with them just for that and then also the women weren't esteemed by the romans as being big rebel leaders you know 
they hadn't seen Star Wars and Princess General Leia. Um, and so them being allowed to go out and mourn would be societally normal. So I'm not going to be too harsh on them there. Um, even though we could hope that they'd be out there doing something else. It makes sense to me. And then Jesus pulls a little teleportation move as he's wont to do. <laughs> And it's one of those things that we kind of just say, oh, yeah, Jesus does that sometimes, right? He mysteriously moves through the crowd um, at Kethranachum when they're trying to kill him. And uh, he sometimes is unrecognizable. It's just one of like, yeah, Jesus has a superpower utility belt. Um, And that's one that he decided to use because the doors were locked and he likes an entrance. Um, However... Which, I mean, who am I to say what Jesus is a superpower utility belt includes, um, since he's divine and everything. But this is also a common motif in Greco-Roman literature. You'd see great healers or miracle workers who would say that they knew that there was a need in some city and so they just teleported there. It's kind of a normal, I mean, not that everyone was doing it, but for a great figure, it would be expected that that's one of the things you could do. So just giving some cultural context to the weirdness of Jesus walking through walls. Yeah. Well, I do wonder, like, maybe in their in their fear, they were, you know, a little out of sorts and they forgot about the window in the back room or something. <laughs> Always going to find a way to cut out the supernatural. Huh? Well, I'm just I'm just wondering, like, what is what does the text actually tell us here? Like, is like, does it say the doors are locked and we are, because like, I mean, I guess they probably didn't have keys in the same way we do, but like. They did have keys. They're cool. Okay. Look them up. They're giant. Because maybe, uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Jesus had a key or would have had a key or something. I mean, not, not with his burial clothes. So I don't know, but. You could be right, but you definitely sound like the person in the horror movie who's going to be killed as the monster walks up to them being like, <laughs> it's a trick of the light. <laughs> well, I like the chainsaws revving. I'm I, sure this is an optical illusion based on the amount of calories I consume today. I do not like to watch those types of movies. Oh, neither do I, but I know the archetypes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering like, what it, if if all we have is the text and we're not assuming anything else, like, is it actually telling us that Jesus went through the wall in the supernatural way? Or is it just saying he found a way in? I think that it's kind of entertaining to imagine Jesus shimming in and s- somehow nobody noticing him in this big crowd of probably 70 disciples. Maybe it's just the 12 and nobody recognizing him until he's in the middle. However, the reason that I don't think it's probably that is because we see other people in scripture teleport. Mm, Fair enough. For instance, acts people do it. They just like the spirit, pick them up and drop them off over here. Uh, That would be fun. Yeah. (laughs) I think. (laughs) Yeah. That's that can be the spiritual gift you pray for, Brent. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I think of my kids and they like Darius, when he was little, he'd love to be like thrown up in the air. And then one day he like just didn't, want that at all it's like oh, okay so i don't know it's hard to say how how i you might react respond to oh, a little practice It'll be fine yeah. okay off track here so he shows them his hands and his side after saying peace be with you or to you rejoice then the disciples having seen the lord 
which they had to see the embodied form of Jesus before rejoicing, which also is a bit of a bummer, but whatever, maybe it's talking about Thomas. Jesus said, therefore, to them again, peace to use as the father sent me forth. I also send you. Okay, so this sending imagery, um, in my opinion, of course, is a huge, huge theme in Torah, um, specifically in the book of Exodus, Scroll of Shemot. Constantly, it's the word shalach in Hebrew, and the whole point is um, not quite let my people go, but send them. Um, and so we've talked uh, in the last episode I did about Jesus being Moshe, and I'm sure that's come up previously plenty of times. But here he's saying, just as I have been sent to be the... Um, you know, the salvation bringer, the deliverance bringer, the liberation of people from all the things that they need liberation from. And now also I send you to be many Moshe's or serving the same father in this patriarchal house system, right? The firstborn is living out the legacy the best, but the rest of the kids do hopefully as well. Or as we saw that the spirit was a better Joshua, you could go with that too. Um, so putting in some Tanakh, some Tanakh flavor to the usual way that we read the commissions, I think gives it more texture, um, and more definition that might help us get away from the usual, the usual mold that we imagine the commissions being in. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And then he breathes on them, which is always nice. Uh, Uh, because it's, again, Genesis imagery, new creation. How does Adam get made? But God breathes on him. So now Jesus breathes on us. Um, He breathes on the disciples. New creation, pneumos, spirit, breath. It all comes together. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So this also has Tanakh precedence. And I think it can be helpful to frame our theology around the spirit from the first two thirds to three fourths of the Bible. So for instance, I mean, you can talk about the judges, but Shaul, um, I don't know. You just said you don't know that section of scripture um, super well, Brent, but you should go back because it's fantastic. Um, Samuel Shmuel is basically like slowly turns in a spinny chair, petting the cat on his lap when (laughs) Shaul shows up and he's like, I knew you were coming here. Have some dinner. It's been laid out for you. Your bed's ready upstairs. Um, It's excellent. And Shaul does, and then he gets anointed um, and sent back out. But the first thing that that Shmuel tells Shaul to do now that he's been anointed to be king of Israel is he tells them, go and find uh, the Pentecostals, go and find the prophets that are singing, dancing and shouting to the Lord on the road who are coming down from a high place. And when you do that and when you join with them, you'll be filled with the spirit. Um, and he does and he is. David also, when he gets anointed, which anointing, of course, setting you ready to go on your new path and calling, he also immediately gets filled with the Spirit. So there's precedence for this. They're being given this new calling. They're being set on their way. And so what happens, especially as a royal priesthood, right, is that um, they're given the Spirit to do that. 
Um, which also goes with, if any of you might forgive sins, they're forgiven. If any of you might retain, they're retained, my inner linear says. So again, royal priesthood. This is the part of the point of being priest. If we're walking in Jesus' footsteps, Jesus healed people, and he taught his 70 how to heal. He forgave people. The Pedashim said, which one is harder? Or no, they got mad at him. Jesus said, which one is harder? And now he's teaching people how to help others navigate sin and atonement in their communities. It's one of the things we're supposed to be doing. And so he unleashes them to walk in this role that he has already taught them how to do and set up. So on your Exodus point, yes, that's the image that I'm thinking about there with the idea that they're being sent Uh from Egypt and then God's breath parts the waters. I like that. It's also there. Yeah. It's also there. The sending is more a command for Moshe. Mm. I am sending you and you are going to be sent than the people in that story. Yeah. Still the same story. So there's room. On the on the forgiveness side, uh, I feel like there's a lot of like responsibility bound up into those statements. Like. I, I think the first part, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. Like, Hey, it's that simple. If you just forgive them, they're forgiven. Like there's, there's doesn't have to be complicated. And then on the other side of that, if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And so then there's like this responsibility, like, Hey, these people are out there waiting for forgiveness. You need to do that or else they're not getting it. Jesus puts a really heavy weight of authority and responsibility all through his ministry on us to forgive. And he says, if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. Right. And we kind of just edit all of that out of our modern Christianity anyway, because it's, um, I mean, it's theologically complex. You're like poking at a huge package under the Christmas tree of theology that you could unpack has to do with atonement and all this super messy stuff that won't fit in an episode. Um, kind of just like poking it with your toe, like, oh, this looks interesting. (laughs) But also Jesus, (laughs) Jesus has been about this the whole time. He's been telling his people this, um, pretty pretty clearly here it's extra clear that he's been putting this weight on us if you do not forgive this is a problem for you and for the other person in a spiritual reality in a full reality not just a like oh well it's not good to harbor bitterness and resentment so you should probably forgive them it's very clear yeah and marty and i were talking uh, a few episodes ago when jesus was praying for his disciples and saying like oh you know they've They've got what they need. They're going to be able to do this. And it's like, what? Like the last few chapters that we're reading, like they clearly don't get it, but Jesus (laughs) has all this confidence in them. And, and again here, he's like, you know, receive this and then go do this work. And, and he did like, there's no qualifications. Like, don't worry if you guys don't get it. Like I'll come back later. Like, it's just go, go do this work period. End of end of the conversation as far as we have recorded. Yeah. It seems to me like sometimes we're not very good receivers um, some, as followers of Jesus, maybe because we think that we need to understand it perfectly first and otherwise it's not a true reception, but you know, childlike faith. Um, that's not the way that kids work when they open things on Christmas. They're not like, um, I need to know how this, uh, remote control vehicle works before I can celebrate it. Um, they're just like, whoa, 
it's a car. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Car. Um, and so just receiving sometimes I think would, would help us a lot on our walk and then figuring it out as we go along. But alas, alas, we, uh, our intellect is our great gift and our great hindrance potentially at the same time. Mm. Any last thoughts before we start talking about Miriam? I don't think so. Wonderful. Okay. So Miriam, I've been calling her that cause that's her name. Um, but just, just, uh, Miriam means a drop of the sea. Yam is the Sumerian god of chaos, by the way. Apep is the Egyptian god of chaos. Um, Yam embodies the sea and chaos at the same time. So a little drop of the sea is like, she's just a little drop of chaos wherever she goes, which I think is fun. Uh <laughs> Um, she's called by Orthodox communities, Catholic communities. She's called the apostles, the apostle to the apostle. She's the first apostle. And they say that because she's the one who goes and teaches the other apostles. What's up? Um, the first person to go witness, um, and teach about what has happened, which is cool. And she does it twice first to Shema'on Petros and then to John. So, She's also very interesting um, character in general because uh, she she's been dealt with in certain ways in order to kind of stick her on the side and to make that uh, her role smaller. Um, there's not as much tradition about her. And um, one author, Holly Huron, says, I resist attempts to construct histories of the early church that cover over conflicts and tensions, believing that we may learn more from these conflicts and tensions and how those within the early church did not or did address them than from histories whose harmonious visage is predicated on forced silence. So we're going to look at kind of the conflicts around Mary and the traditions around her and um, what we know she was getting up to from contemporaneous histories so that we can have a little bit more fleshed out figure of Miriam, just like we do of the other disciples when they, you know, we know what they got up to and whether they got killed in the line of duty, etc. And so we're going to, we're going to look at her. Sound good? Okay. So who is she? The name is likely popular uh, in this area, area, in this era, rather, due not only to Miriam the prophetess, who's a big deal, um, but she's also, has the same name as an executed Hasmonean princess, had the misfortune to be the first wife of, wife of Herod the Great, um, also the same name as the third wife of Herod the Great, uh, and the daughter of the high priest. So, you know, that's probably why there's so many Miriams running around at the time of Jesus that we have to be like, wait, is this the one of Bethany? Is this mother of Jesus? Is this what's happening? And then famously, Pope Greg, whose full name is Gregory the Great, of course, um, Gregorius perhaps, but I prefer Greg. Um, he feels like a Greg to me. He contributed <laughs> to the further confusion by conflating 
Miriam the Migdal with the sinful woman, in quotes, who anoints Jesus's feet in Luke 7. Mm. So in the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and John 12, it's Mary of Bethany who does this. Uh, However, Pope Greg, in his homily, dubbed Mary a prostitute, claiming that the ointment spread on Jesus's feet had been used to perfume herself for sex work, which is just a little bit too specific uh, and creative not to be concerned about, Greg. Um, What you doing, man? Why does any woman who happens to have perfume have been using it for dubious uh, effects? Um, He also might have been influenced by Christism. uh, If you, you know, just like to pawn things off like, oh, well, that's the Catholics. Um, He deemed the sinful woman a harlot in his 80th homily without any explanation or fanfare. But there's lots of ways to be sinful that don't involve prostitution. I don't know if you know that, Brent. Uh, (laughs) Sure. But I can think of... It's the only way I know so far. (laughs) Plenty that spring to my mind. Um that it could have been but so greg said this and it's very indicative of the way that lots of interpretation from the early church fathers through christian history likes to view mary magdalene he says mary magdalene had been a sinner in the city but in loving the truth she washed by her tears the defilement of her faults it is thus that almighty god puts us everywhere before the eyes of models to imitate that everywhere he offers us examples of his mercy let us take abhorrence of the bad actions even those we have committed almighty god willingly forgets that we have been guilty he is ready to count our penance for innocence so we're much more comfortable meditating on how gross and, uh, you know, sex adjacent Mary Magdalene might have been um, and saying, oh, it's so good because she's clinging to Jesus and she's so sad and weeping all the time. That can be more comfortable to imagine than to imagine her like being angry in the garden or uh being the apostle to the apostles. And so we see her kind of pigeonholed into these particular robes um, by the church and by these particular theologians over, you know, a thousand years. Um, One scholar coming out of Princeton put it this way, it is the sorrowful penitent who is acceptable. That's the kind of woman these texts seek. One can't help but think that men who relish this recollection of Mary, the penitent sinner, are those who are trying to inform their own world with their own vision of what sexual and gendered relationships ought to be with women, not enticing men with the dangers of sex, but falling at their feet in humble submission and penitence, right? That fits that whole worldview um, pretty easily. So that's kind of the scope if you are just looking for, well, what have people been saying more recently about Mary more recently being, you know, post 500? Okay. So that's the, that's the like, you know, Gregory and onward, Greg, P. Greg Mm -hmm. and onward. He was 590 to 604. Mm -hmm. He was the Pope. So um, that's, that's a little ways removed Mm -hmm. from the story. So like what... What was the opinion before he, you know, threw out all these wild ideas about who she is? Let's get into it. What a great question. What was the earliest account of Miriam? Excellent. Uh, Didn't we just read it? (laughs) 
<laughs> contemporaneous accounts, perhaps. Sure. John's pretty late, so some of the things yeah, are as early as him or earlier. Um, but so we said Niriam means drop of chaos. We have the the Migdal part that I've been saying on and off as right. we've been going along. The title of our episode. Even. The title of our episode. So... I discovered this um, when I was researching Miriam um, as part of my grad work. Um, but recently, there was a big super viral uh, sermon that went online that had been um, presented at some uh, at a conference, positing um, and noticing that her name is the Migdal. Um, so. You know, stealing my thunder a couple of weeks before I get to talk about it. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Having a hipster moment. It's that all recently. about my ego. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I was bummed when it started getting texted to me. I'm like, ah, I know. <laughs> anyway, too deep of an insight into my uh, into my pride there. So she posits um, something that previously scholars have also dropped into their research. So it's not like I had the, I had this great discovery. Plenty of other people have noticed as you would notice in the Greek. Um, it says that it has the definite article. So when we have Saul of Tarsus talking about Paulos, um, there's no that it's, it's not Saul the Tarsen or something. It's Shaul Tarsus with a, prefix suffix situation however she gets a definite article she gets a the every single time um in our septuagint um in our early manuscripts all the way to the end she's always miriam the migdal so people often say well magdala is a place um it's a village you can go it's by Kefran Nahum on the north coast of the Galil of Galilee however um the Babylonian Talmud tells us that that village wouldn't be named Magdala Nunia until its reconstruction following a fire in the 60s so it didn't exist at the, that time the zero 60s Six right. zero S. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Not the nineteen sixties. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anno Domini sixty. Or or even any other sixties, just yeah. just to be clear. Yeah. Not the sixties. Because Babylonian Talmud is what, nine hundreds or something? Uh it's it was written when they're in Babylon. So when they're in exile. Oh. But it would it was renamed in AD sixty? You're asking a question and I thought it was about the Babylonian Talmud, and now it seems like you're asking what? about the I thought you said Babylonian Talmud. I did. <laughs> What's happening? Oh, I don't no. know. <laughs> okay. Cut. <laughs> What's your question? Ma Mar uh, Magdala was renamed in AD 60. Right. According to... The Babylonian Talmud. Yes. So the Babylonian Talmud, this is a good confusion. Um, <laughs> I understand Thank now you. why you're not understanding. Um, so it was composed, the majority of it, working out our stories, our Agadah, our legends, our rules for how we follow Torah. That's oral tradition um, that happened while they were in Babylon. Um, of course, a lot of folks stayed in Babylon. And so we have the Babylonian Talmud, at which moved from oral tradition to written later under Judah Hanasi, Yehuda Hanasi. Um, and then we also have a Jerusalem Talmud, by the way, um, which was the version that's written down by the people who returned to the land. 
um, which is cool because it enables you to see which stories are older and which ones are later, because the ones that match perfectly are the ones that are from before Nehemiah and Ezra's time, right? Yeah. Surprise Talmud lesson. Surprise. Uh, Anyway, so what what am I thinking of? The Masoretic text maybe is, is that? They're later. 800s, 900s? Yeah. Okay. That's that's what I had in mind when you said Babylonian Talmud for some reason. So gotcha. Anyway. No, the Masoretes, descendants of the Pharisees, right. inventors of vowels, and the suffering of Hebrew students everywhere. <laughs> okay. Uh, Josephus Strabo, Strabo. I don't know. Pliny, Suetonius. So all of our big history guys all describe this area around Capernaum, and none of them mention a town called Magdala. Interesting. Yes, I've been there. It's lovely. She was not necessarily from there. So what does Migdal mean um, if she's the Migdal? Migdal means tower. So there's um, this prophecy in Micah 4, 8, and it says, You, tower of the flock, a fort of the daughter of Zion, as far as to you shall come the first dominion, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And so there's this theory um, that even if you don't like that theory, uh, for whatever reason, you do have to grapple with the fact that this is more of a title than the place that she's from because of this inclusion of the the. So you don't like Micah? Cool. Live your best life. But tell me, why does she have this title, the tower? And it seems like she might be mirroring or paralleling Shimaon, the Petros, Simon, the rock, which is also what uh, John calls him here. He gets both names. And then Mary, the tower. They go together. Mm. Hmm. And John the Beloved. Yes. (laughs) I don't know if if that article is there in the same way, but... It's not, but that's okay. (laughs) We can just add in people. (laughs) That's all right. Um, Okay. Uh, So in all of our corroborating contemporaneous literature that describes the life of Jesus and disciples, by the way, Mary the Migdal is always there. Um, And often she's asking questions just as often as Peter is, um, which doesn't often go well for her in a bunch of these stories, which is kind of entertaining, um, especially if you've ever been a woman in a situation where people are confused about why you're there. But so in one of these, Peter is griping to Jesus with his usual subtlety. He says, let Miriam leave us for women are not worthy of life, which (laughs) way to go hard. (laughs) Very you know, never, just, never mind there, the source of your life. Yeah, good point. Just some full out misogyny recorded for us there. Um, Jesus has a super interesting answer, by the way. Um, but there's another depiction of Jesus and another scroll um, where Peter is frustrated that Miriam is there asking questions, um, which, again, probably has to do something of the hierarchy, right? We always, I know Marty's talked about this. We always should throw shade at Peter for having all these questions, but that was his job as the lead disciple, right? So this is a hierarchy problem that she's also asking questions and answering questions. Um, so he's mad again. Uh, and Andrew has to tell her him rather, who are you to argue with Jesus? Um, so, you know, for women folk out there, as long as women have been present at the imagined table of Christianity, they've found themselves vehemently opposed and even hated on a deeply personal level. Um, So so threatening, this this tower. 
towering figure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a rock is smaller than a tower, I guess. I'm not trying to say that anything by that, but I guess, I guess it's a lot for Peter. Generally. Yeah. Um, so in another one of these, which you can imagine happening as she's come back to all the disciples and she's telling them what happened as Jesus told her to, um, Peter again springs forward to object um and actually andrew's on his side in this version so maybe he has a change of heart at some time but here's a quote from the scroll andrew answered and said to the brethren say what you wish about what she has said i at least do not believe that the savior said this for certainly these teachings are strange ideas peter questioned them about the savior did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us are we to turn about and all listen to her did he prefer her to us then mary wept and said peter my brother peter what do you think do you think i have thought of myself in my heart uh these things myself in my heart or that i'm lying about the savior levi answered and said to peter peter you've always been hot-tempered now i see you are contending with the woman like the adversaries do which is interesting but if the savior has made her worthy who are you indeed to reject her surely the savior knows her very well that is why he loved her more than us interesting Hmm. interesting so that's our contemporaneous what's going on at that time when we have other writings talking about what Jesus is doing and teaching, that's what they say. She's a prominent figure in um, all those codices. So what happened to her if she's indeed the first apostle, teacher to the teachers, um, before Gregory got in there with his wild conspiracy theories? So a lot of our surviving material comes from um, heresiologists. Are you familiar with these guys? No. So and we've got these big compendiums like the Panarion is the really famous one. Um, and the idea is that these guys traveled around while Christianity was still coming together. And they formulated a list of like, these are the cults that are popping up that aren't orthodox, that aren't okay, which I can see having some value in that they didn't have mass media at the time and we're trying to keep like the original teachings of Jesus secure and we're trying to guard our fences from wolves and everything. Um, however, the way they read is a lot more like Twitter or nasty Christian blogs that just exist to like in all caps, write Something like Tim Keller actually worships Satan or whatever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Um, they don't read super credibly. So um, <laughs> this is actually where we get the annoying secular idea that Jesus was sleeping with Miriam, which everybody feels like is really transgressive and exciting to put out there like nobody has done it before. But it's been around since the very beginning. Um, people were suggesting that that has happened. So if you're thinking of writing some devious book, you're not that original. It's been 2,000 years, guys. Calm down. <laughs> um, but we get those ideas because we have these super, again, it makes me concerned about the writer, but super vivid accounts of what crazy sex cults are arising because people are following Miriam, which, again, seems unlikely, in my opinion. Yeah. Especially if you read them, they involve eating babies. And for some reason, it only uh, is described about the North African community, which also seems tenuous to me. 
uh, especially because the name that they give the North African community and the language of the Panarian is written is also rather racist to begin with. So it's anyway, that's why we have that running around in the world today, if you've ever wondered. But we also have secular people complaining. Um, but through their complaints, we can see a window into the fact that she was helping the early church get set up. So we've got this Greek philosopher named Celsus, and he's saying that Christianity as a whole is dumb um, and talks about the resurrection. And he says this, but who saw this a hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery, who either dreamt in a certain state of mind and through wishful thinking had a hallucination due to some mistaken notion and experience, which has happened to thousands, or which is more likely wanted to impress others by telling this fantastic sale tale and so buy this cock and bull story to provide a chance for other beggars so you've got some classism in there you've got some misogyny in there but what he's saying all the good stuff all the good stuff the things you show up for what do i hope i get served today um but you know why would you listen to women they don't know what they're talking about and it's this is just a religion for poor people um Celsus also gives an account of various Christian leaders who've gained a considerable following, and among them he lists Marcelina, St. Ambrose's sister, um, Salome, Mary, and even Martha, who, which would be great if she got a brief redemption from her surly depiction in Luke 10. Um, so it seems like we have these different accounts. Those people specifically are in Turkey and a little bit to the east we know Christianity spread pretty far east because one of the quote unquote Gnostic sects existed into well into Chinese history. Sometimes I'll have to talk about that, but we've got some really cool half Christian um, uh, Chinese art from that period. Um, so anyway, they spread east, but women weren't always literate. And so um, they might not have written as much as the Mediterranean folks did. And then also whenever the Mediterranean folks did find stories about our early um, church leaders like Miriam, um, they were often destroyed because of these um, blogs <laughs> who were citing them as dangerous hysterical women, etc. Um, and so we've lost a lot of accounts. But thankfully, in the Gospels, at least, we have this faithful preservation of the faithfulness of uh, Miriam, the Migdal, and we can have all sorts of our own theories and ideas about why she's called that, but she does get this fancy title that we do have to reckon with, and we have this story. So delightful if you're looking for some more role models, you know, um, and we're looking for different ways that that Galatians 5, um, neither slave nor free, was really brought into fruition. Um, her leadership certainly might have been one of those ways. Okay, so El, before we before we move on, I feel like there was there was one other thing that you had about this like section, um, like what what what's the real driving? Like, why is this story even here? So, well, not the whole resurrection story, but why I think do we have this section about Jesus telling Miriam to go back and give this message? Because if you think about it, um, there is no reason practically to send 
Miriam back to explain anything to the disciples. She could have just walked back with Jesus or teleported back with Jesus, or he could have said, I'm going to walk or teleport back. Um, Meet you there. Right. He could have done any of those things. And I'm sure he, as a, you know, human divine being would have done a better job explaining whatever he wanted to explain and taught than a human being. And yet for some reason, whether that's for Miriam's benefit or for the disciples' benefit to stretch their faith as they get uncomfortable with some gender norms, right? Um, he decides that he wants her to go back and teach them something about the resurrection and something about this father-God uh, relationship thing, um, whether you take that as her father or Jesus's father. Either way, that's a kind of theologically dense ask that he didn't need to do. He could have done it himself. And so I think it's important to recognize that God never needs any of us. But in this particular moment, wasn't like he was going to be caught up or needed to swing by the grocery store on his way there. Um, and so it's specifically, he created an opportunity, a moment to ask a woman to go and teach his disciples, the apostle to the apostles. So whatever you do with all the history that we're going to talk about of the way this story is received and the way her figure has been received over time, that's totally up to listeners and their community and whatever they're bringing to the table and their voices, which are all important um, and diverse and unique. Um, keeping that in mind, why is her name the Migdal if it's not the tower and it's not about Micah 6? And why did Jesus choose to utilize her in this way and call her forth into this role? Um, if not to say something about women's ability to teach um, and perhaps calling to teach, right? So little, little, uh, little side note here that might be central to the story. Yeah. And I think that's maybe a common feeling for a lot of people is uh, like, oh, God, why would God call me? Or God doesn't really need me or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but he intentionally called you anyway. Right. So. Right. All, yeah, all the way it. through the story, we can always say that, well, God could have rescued the Egyptians on his own. Yep. He could have, but he used Moshe. God could have taught the disciples himself. Yep. But he used this woman. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm a fan. Pretty cool character. She is. She is. And not a prostitute, Greg. If you don't get anything from this whole episode, <laughs> not a prostitute. <laughs> uh, well. It's okay. They can glare at each other in heaven all they want. Perfect. <laughs> oh, man. Hopefully it's uh, an enlightening experience and he's cured of all of his strange thoughts sure. on entry but you know, yeah. hard to say yeah um okay well that's it jesus is uh is alive sure jesus is. is risen he's risen indeed and we have a, a new perspective on miriam slash mary yeah put me up there with nt right <laughs> new perspective on paul new perspective oh, didn't on i was not intending to do that but <laughs> i'll take it sure uh, <laughs> me and tom Wright have a lot in common <laughs> perfect i love it absolutely um we do have a few books in the show notes uh three yep. three of them uh that you can check out uh that l was using as sources mm -hmm. for this lesson um so dig in if you want to know more. Enjoy. Uh, even more. We definitely um, did not end up with a short episode. <laughs> I didn't promise short. I just promised not 
exceedingly incredibly long. Yes, well, we did have a couple of interruptions, so we'll see where it, where it ends up. dang spider, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. You can contact L at lgroverfricks at gmail.com. That's correct. And you can find more details about the show at baymodeception.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymod podcast. We will talk to you again soon. They have taken away my Lord. What was that? Something just fall? No idea. Man. It's Jesus. <laughs> He's here. There he is. <laughs> uh... <laughs> people been saying more recently about mary more recently being you know post 500 there's a giant spider on the ceiling um and i would really like to do something about that (laughs) failure (laughs) if i'd known you're going to set him free to scuttle around and deliverance and liberation around my mic i would have just done it with my shoe I guess. Good thing you're a Gentile. Thanks, Brent. <laughs> well, no mic drops, but spider surprise breaks. spider. <laughs> Is there ever an expected spider? Uh, you know, some places I think they're more expected than others, but okay, never a welcome spider. Don't know about that. I've got too many Buddhist monk friends to be able to say that. <laughs> Uh, I don't quite know what that means, but that's okay.